Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Law School Lounge podcast. This is a Carolina Academic Press production where we discuss everything law school. The Law School Lounge is a place for students and faculty alike to discuss law school and the law. We hope you'll hang out with us for a while. Welcome back to another episode of the Law School Lounge. This is your host, Crystal Norton, and I am so fortunate that this week I am joined once again by Dean Darby Dickerson and Professor Brooke Bowman. These co-editors of the Scribes Manual for Law Review Editors are back to discuss the editorial board. Throughout this episode, we consider what each member of an editorial board is typically called and what responsibilities each typically carries throughout the law review publication process. We also talk about the selection process for editorial board members, including offering some tips for those who are trying to get one of these really coveted positions. The last topic that we take into consideration is the article selection process. This is obviously one of the most important things that the editorial board handles, selecting the articles that are going to be within the journal. And so we actually evaluate a scribe survey that talked to many different law reviews to determine which factors they felt were the most important when determining which articles are going forward for the publication. I hope that you find our discussion informative especially if you are someone who's looking to be on the editorial board, someone who just got one of those really wonderful new positions, or if you're a faculty advisor for the law review at the school where you're located. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy our conversation. gears and dive deeper into the law review editorial board. We've touched a little bit upon sort of the hierarchy of a law review, where at sort of the top is sitting this editorial board. So what is an editorial board? And I know you've talked about sort of the main positions and a bit about their roles and responsibilities, but could you go a little bit deeper on that? I'm happy to. Um... Dean Dickerson gave us a thorough description of the hierarchy, but what your editorial board is, is the group of individuals at the very top, which is overseeing the business of the law review, which is the publication of these multiple issues per, per year. But that's also considering what is our outreach? What so- social media are we going to use to promote our journal, or are we going to have a live or a virtual symposium on a topic? Uh, and so the group with the editor in, in their name is basically the, the bosses, lack of a better word. Um, of they're the, the shot callers. Yeah, they're shot callers. I mean, they're <laughs> determining the direction. Um, I remember, with the help of faculty advisor, determining our mission where we wanted this to go, because at the time we had certain symposia issues, um, you're setting the standards. What, what do you want this to look like? What, 
do you want this organization to stand for? So it's that group of individuals at the very top that are in, in, in charge of that high level policy determinations. Yeah, I think of the editorial board as the management of the law review. And the members play significant roles in soliciting the articles from which to choose, then selecting which ones are going to be in the journal, and then engaging in the editing process to ensure the the quality of the article, and then making sure that that article or each article is put through every stage of the production process. So at the end, you have a physical book if you're still printing your book, or more likely these days you have on your website, a new set of articles appears and in their contracts with databases like Lexis and Westlaw, pick those up so that people doing research will have access to them. But I think of it as the management. Okay. And so within our management structure, about how many editors typically on average make up the editorial board and what are their titles. I know you said that titles are not necessarily consistent across the board, but generally speaking, what does that look like? Sure. The number of editors on the editorial board is really going to vary. Uh, You know, in some places you might have six or eight. In some places you might have 30, depending on how many issues are being published in a given year. Wow, that's huge. I didn't realize they got that big. Well, you consider some of the larger law schools are more than 500 students per class, and they might be publishing eight or 10 issues, I think is sort of the top. It's rare. Um, you know, four to six might be more standard. But sometimes you, if you're publishing a lot of books, you're going to have one or two articles editors, for example, assigned to each issue. So, um, that gives you a sense that it could be a larger board. But at the top is the editor-in-chief, and that is, I'll use Brooks' term, that is the boss. That is the president of the organization, if you will. And that role has an external feature like the others don't and and a strong internal feature as well. So when people, like, like the faculty or the administration is thinking about the law review or representative of the law review, they go get the editor-in-chief. So the editor-in-chief might be invited to various events. So maybe there's a an alumni board meeting and you're bringing in the leaders of your top student organization. So the editor-in-chief is going to be asked to show up. Maybe the faculty is interested in what the law review is going to be doing and invites the editor-in-chief either to write a written report or to come in for 10 minutes and talk about the work. Maybe career services is looking for a group of students to serve as ambassadors for the school at a judicial reception. And the editor-in-chief is often a name that comes to mind at any school to take to that reception. So the editor-in-chief is often the face of the law review for that year in terms of dealing with external audiences. But they're also making sure that everyone on the editorial board is sticking to their job. And they're the troubleshooter. So if two editors have an issue they can't resolve, they take it to the editor-in-chief. If there's an issue with the staff member that an editor can't resolve, it bubbles up to the editor-in-chief and 
that are achieved either resolves it or goes to the faculty advisor. Uh, when grades are assigned, the faculty advisor under accreditation rules has to put the be the one that submits the grade to the registrar. But often that faculty advisor is going to sit down with the editor in chief and go student by student and want the backup to prove like what did this student do and why are you saying it's this grade or versus that grade. It's usually pass fail, so it's usually an easier process than that just uh, sounded. So they really are the glue that holds it together. And then you often have a second in command, an executive editor, a managing editor, and they are usually the person that makes sure that the staff, the new members have work. So here, you know, here's the site and source going out and these five students, you know, have that. And the first one has the first 25 footnotes and so forth and so on. And is setting the deadlines in connection with the editor is often doing quality control work at a late stage of the process to make sure is the editing process going well and is often a sounding board for the editor-in-chief because the editor-in-chief needs someone to to vent to, to bounce ideas off of them. The articles editors are the ones who are in charge of selecting the articles. Sometimes one person gets to make that selection. Sometimes it's a group. Sometimes the articles editors get to make recommendations and the editor-in-chief gets the final say. But once the articles are selected, then they're the ones who work directly with those outside authors, the professors, the attorneys, the judges, to make sure that piece is the best it's going to be. So they're going to be looking at the grammar. They're going to be looking at the large-scale ideas. It's like the organization of this piece makes sense. They're going to be looking at the citations and interacting with the the author, but also interacting with others like the staff members who've been assigned to work on that piece. The notes and comments editors, I think of them as sort of super teaching fellows because they're going to work with the students who are coming on to LARVIEW and have to write their own scholarly papers. So they're going to be the ones that set the deadlines, set the the different types of assignments that have to be done, like your topic has to be submitted by this day, your thesis statement by this day. And they're also the ones that from a peer perspective are going to be your sounding board and helping you, again, from a peer perspective, figure out, are you on track with this paper? And you're also typically going to have a professor or an attorney who's a subject matter expert who's going to be helping you as as well. But they help the the students through, and then they're the ones who make either the decision or the recommendation to the EIC of which students get their papers published in the law review and help fix those papers up for publication. Um, A research editor could be used in two different ways. It could be the person who runs the write-on competition and picks the case that everyone's going to be writing about and puts together the rubric of how those papers are going to be graded and make sure that all the deadlines are met for that. Or it could be someone who gets the the sticky the sticky cases, like no one can find these 
resources written in Indonesian. Um, find them and get them translated, you know, research editor. And then you have other editors as well, like a symposium editor might be putting together a conference on a specific topic, and then you're going to get the articles in from that. So you're you're an article editor, but you've got conference planning responsibilities. And you might have something like a diversity editor. A lot of large journals have added this to do things like look at the policies and procedures of the law review to make sure it's an inclusive and welcoming environment and that we're taking articles from talented people, regardless of their, their gender, race, ethnicity, and so forth. And often they're reaching out within the student body to make sure that different groups um, understand what law review is and what the benefits are and make sure that everyone understands that if they meet the eligibility requirements, they're welcome to apply and they want you to participate in the journal. Wow. There's a lot, there is a lot going on there, <laughs> but in a good way. I mean, it, I think it reflects back to our theme that it takes a whole team to create the law review. And my next question related to all of this is if you decide, okay, I'm really interested on, on about being an editor, right? How exactly are editorial board members chosen? What does that process look like? What does it usually entail? Well, it depends upon the law review. When when I came on as a new 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 member, I was immediately asked, "You need to apply." And so, what did apply mean? I, I think I filled out some application. I attached a recent resume, and then I remember a, a twenty thirty minute interview of my interests, my skills, etc. Others may be determined on grades. Others may be determined on, I've, I've seen for uh, some of our specialty journals at my law school that there is uh, a writing competition. They want to see that you can do the work that the staff members can do. So it, it, there's a lot of variety. Uh, I also remember once being an editor that you can see Hey, this person's doing really good work. is is a team player. is showing showing initiative and being resourceful. Then, also word of mouth that you recruit the next um, editor. And then there's also opportunities. Uh, Darby went through. Oh, there's so many. Our law review added an online editor, and that's taking one special issue of the law review that's published in an online, we're not talking PDF, online format and a special format and special uh, focus of that, that there's also opportunities to be associate editors. And so you get on law review, how can I train to be the next editor-in-chief or the next managing editor or the next article editor? You can become an associate or an assistant editor to that person. So the best way to figure out, hey, I'm on law review and I want to be an editor. Well, I'm going to find out how do I become an editor? What is the process? What are they looking for? And then I'm going to want to shadow individuals and, and, and see what they do. And who exactly? So you talked about, you know, submitting an application and an interview, which I think is generally pretty standard. 
what exactly or who who are you submitting this stuff to? Who's making these decisions about who's going to take over the editorial board? You know, Crystal, like so many other answers in law school, it depends. Oh, yes. The correct answer. It depends on that particular law review or law journal. And it can be different even within the school. So in many instances, the outgoing board, with or without the faculty advisor present, will be the individuals reviewing the applications and doing the interviewing and often the selection. But sometimes it's different. Sometimes the faculty advisors play outsized outsized roles and get a lot of say over maybe the editor-in-chief. I was going through the results of a survey that an organization that Brooke and I are both on the board of called Scribes, the American Society of Legal Writers. Every other year, we're doing a survey of law reviews. I was going through that, looking at some answers to this process question. And some schools have all returning members. So you're all of your, your, um, First years who are going to be second, you know, second years on the review. So all of your staff members get to vote. Sometimes the the board selects the editor in chief, and the editor in chief solo selects every other position on the journal. Sometimes the editorial board recommends a slate of candidates, and then the entire membership of the law review, both those who are about to graduate, those who are about to move up um, to their 3L or 4-year four L, 4L year vote. So it really is a smorgasbord. And that's often not something you're going to find on the website. That's something you're only going to find out from the law review's constitution or bylaws, those governing documents or by talking to people already in those editor positions. So this leads me to sort of a caveat that I would I would ask maybe, because I think every school probably handles this part differently as well. But I was fortunate enough, as I said, to make law review and also do moot court, right? And at Loyola New Orleans, at the time I was there, which was now 10 years ago, could well have changed by now. But I interviewed for law review editor positions and moot court board positions at the same time. And they ended up, they figured out different ways and they had done it differently throughout the years to communicate like, we want to extend so and so a position. And then the other side was like, oh, we also want to extend the same person that a position with us. And you had to kind of figure out which you were going to take and who was going to offer first and things like that. I know we talked about participating in multiple groups at once. Is there any particular consistency with how schools handle that? Should people interview with multiple groups? Like, how do you feel about that? I'm also the director of our Moot Court board at Stetson, and so I can just speak to ours. But there is no one, you know, the the favorite law school answer Dean Deckerson has given it. It depends. <laughs> right. um, our our advocacy tryouts fall at the end of the year and end of the spring semester, 
And I purposely scheduled the moot court tryouts not to interfere with the law review write-on competition. And I'm talking our main law review. There are are five others. Um, But our main law review that I'm like, because I want on moot court strong writers too. And it it just so happens that the announcement of who makes moot court and who makes law review coincide and they don't have to make a decision. They're invited and they, they can join both. In fact, uh, it's not uncommon that in years past, I've had the editor in chief also on moot court. And again, it goes back to time management, but it's, it's really going to depend. Um, I've, in talking to colleagues at other schools, there is a decision. You cannot do X and Y. And I was fortunate being the managing editor was one of the two editor positions I had at at law school. And that's how I really started to get a glimpse of the variety of activities that law review editors and associates were part of because the managing editor at, at Stetson I was in charge of distributing workload and it became very clear that I needed to talk to them. I'm going to get a better work product because so-and-so has a trial team competition at X time and the next work product is going to be assigned at that time. So I would actually work with them. I learned about moot court. I learned about trial team. I learned about the dispute resolution board and said, okay, when is your competition? I'm going to assign it differently. Do you mind taking it early or do you mind, you might end up with a little bit more, but I can wait till after you come back. So it's really, uh, Dean Dickerson said it well, because it's not usually information that you can find readily on a law review website when you're thinking about um, how much can I do, especially as an editor, because I know at times some Some institutions have said, if you are editor-in-chief, no, you can't do anything else. We want your focus there. And so it's it's talking to the faculty advisor, talking to editors. But I always encourage those who are on moot court that do, and I'm probably close to three-quarters of my membership are on one of the journals. Right. Because they need to be writers. But when they're talking about it, and I interview all incoming MOOCOR board members, that I'm like, I need to put you in touch with this person who is also a member of Law Review and does MOOCORT. Let's let you peer-to-peer talk about the time commitment, any questions, concerns. And I usually even try to pair, here's somebody who also has a family. Here's somebody I recently brought on to evening students. And so, okay, this is a different perspective. I need you to talk to so-and-so because what we're talking about here is not information readily available on a website. That's why I brought it up is because there does tend to be a lot of overlap between the two and it's not uncommon or between all of these organizations, particularly if they're, you know, competition related or skill related or grade related and especially grade related. And so trying to figure out the process for what it will look like if you want to try to be on, you know, one or the other or both or, you know, whatever your school permits. But just getting that information is kind of important if you think that's a situation you might find yourself in. And and please, Dean Dickerson, what did you want to add? I wanted to answer the question that you asked about 
if you're interested in multiple things, should you try out for all of them? And some of it goes to what Brooke has already said. You've got to figure out are the competitions actually at the same time? Uh, do your school policies allow it? But if there's no prohibition, I think it's fine for you to go for it if you have that time to put into it. I do think that you do need to think seriously about whether if you make both or all of them, can you accept? But I wouldn't cut off your opportunities at the beginning and just say, I'm only going to argue. I'm not going to go from court because sometimes you don't you don't make one and it is always a nice opportunity to have some of these unique extracurricular activities because you get to work with other really talented students and often extraordinary faculty members and build those those deep relationships. And then one other twist I was just going to throw in there and as you're looking through the policy, you're like, can I do this? Can I be on Law Review in Moot Court? I always talk to people in your school because sometimes the answer is you can balance this. But one little hook that some schools said is they set a limit on the number of pass-fail classes, or credit, mm. no-credit classes you can take. So there won't be this explicit rule that says you can't be on Law Review and trial team, or you can't be on law review and moot court or law review and do a clinic, but they might have a cap of say six hours, which means you've got to figure out, are you allowed to be on law review and not get academic credit? And that, that answer varies, or are you going to have to make a choice because of that rule? And the faculty have sometimes put that rule in place because they do you want to spread the opportunities and have people focus on one or two things instead of spreading themselves across three, four, or five major opportunities? Yeah, no, I, I think it's it's all well said, and and all of those tips about like looking at the school policies and those extra resources that most students don't realize exist. I, I felt like at least when I was doing this process that I was kind of flying by the seat of my pants just just a little bit. So if I if you can share information about resources, I think that's a great way to go. And to be fair, you know, different issues can arise in different years, so it's not always clear how things will be handled because it might be, you know, you have a new board uh, in these positions who are working to figure out things that they're maybe not as familiar with or new issues that they haven't had to work with before. And so it's not necessarily that it's for lack of wanting some sort of system or policy that they can use. It's that they haven't ever had to create one before. And I think, you know, thinking back to what our process was, I believe it was if you were going to be interviewing for both, because uh, Moot Court and Law Review were the two like bigger things at Loyola New Orleans when I was there. And if you were going to be interviewing for both, the interviews happened on the same day. So that all of the, yeah, <laughs> yay. Uh, but it was so that it, it made sense though. It was so that all of the people who were making the decisions could all work things out together. And so what you did was you had a piece of paper at the beginning and you filled out you, your hierarchy of what you would want if you got it. And then they met separately, the boards, 
they came up with their top choice of like, if I could have everyone from who interviewed, this is who we would have. And then the two, you know, the board chairperson and the editor in chief met and were like, okay, these are the people who overlap. We need to open their envelopes and see which, how they prioritized. I mean, they made this whole system of, of how to do it. Uh, but they had they had made that system, you know, going into the interviews. So it was something you kind of found out as you went along. And I think it's because in my year, we were a particularly large class. I went to law school in 2010, which was the, the boon of the law school students. And so they just had more overlap and more people than they had ever had before to, to kind of manage. Uh, and so I, just talking to the people really was helpful, talking to the different board members. I definitely made it a point to talk to the people who were on both boards and get a real feel for what exactly they would be doing. And I not only thought about how that would benefit sort of my career prospects or what I was trying to do in the future, but also what I felt fit my skills best right? Because you are trying to serve on these boards and serve the institution. So in what capacity will my skills benefit everyone the most? And that leads into my next question, of course. And that is when you're interviewing for this type of position on an editorial board, what should you be emphasizing? What are they looking for in terms of what you bring to the table as a potential editorial board member? I can tell you what stood out in mine um, because they've, they've already looked at what's your job performance, how have you done, you know, look at your, your work product as, as a law review member. I got many questions about teamwork because leadership skills, I, maybe I had shown it, but it was the teamwork and the, the how would you work with this type of person, this type of person. Um, and especially I, my first editorial position was articles. And so there was a lot of focus on, you're going to be directly communicating with authors. What about this? What about this? How would you handle this? So a lot of hypotheticals, because there's certain skills, the research, the writing, those you can see coming through the process um, with the service you've done thus far. They're trying to get at... Uh, I call them the character skills. I think Dean Dickerson said the soft skills that I, I remember being asked a lot of hypotheticals and, and especially about teamwork and, and meeting of deadlines. I think it depends on the position. As Professor Bowman mentioned earlier, somewhere there's the equivalent of a job description for each position. And just as if you're applying for a job, you would try to show how your skill set and interest matches with that job requirements and what you'll be doing in that job. It's, it's partially that approach, but I absolutely agree that you're typically not going in to try to convince them that you're a great writer or you meet deadlines and things like that because they've seen your work performance so if you um, didn't perform up to par, someone probably has told you along the way that maybe applying for the position isn't in your best interest, or if you get an interview, it's more of a courtesy. And if you've had something, if you had something like that happen and have an explanation, 
certainly you need to bring it out. So if you missed a deadline and weren't as um, diligent about, you know, giving advance notice that you could meet that deadline, but let's say your child was sick and that was the reason you can explain that that was it, that maybe you were a little embarrassed or reluctant to use that as an excuse, but you learn from that. And as an editor, you've made arrangements for emergency childcare or whatever the situation is to show that you acknowledged it. But I also agree a lot of times in the the interviews, you're just being given hypotheticals that that board and others have experienced with regard to either significant issues that have arisen on the law review or that they know your position is going to encounter. And they're looking for people who are going to be respectful of everyone on the Law Review and everyone who works with Law Review, who's going to be professional and a team player, because there's nothing worse than for a year being locked in a battle with these people who, again, you're supposed to be rowing in the same direction and on the same team. So they're looking to put together a great team with different skill sets and perspectives, but a team nonetheless. They want people who are going to be a good ambassador for the law journal and have good judgment because a lot of times you're making some significant decisions, particularly articles editors at EIC when you're selecting the articles that are going to be published. Is this going to reflect well on the journal and the school that is your host? And what if you find out that there's a problem with that article How are you going to handle that? Do you have the diplomacy skills? Do you have the communication skills and maturity to connect with the faculty advisor and talk about it, to talk with an author about it, maybe even to go into the the dean's office to say, I need to escalate this or give you a heads up about this situation. Can you do that? And are you going to take ownership and accountability for the work? Because you are the leaders, you are the management. You've got to set the example for everyone else and pull your weight and pull together if someone else needs a bit of assistance. Those were the things that I was looking for times I participated in these processes. So if you had tips to give somebody who finds themselves going into an interview, for one of these positions, what would it be? And I, I can give an example. So I have in my undergraduate background is a business degree, which going into these interviews, I thought was not really all that important. Uh, but as we've talked about at length, things like law review and moot court have a business aspect. And so one of the very first things they asked me was, what did you study specifically in undergrad? You have a business degree. How could you use that to benefit the programs? And, you know, honestly, going into the interview, I didn't think that was going to play a huge part in what they were going to talk to me about. So do you have any quick tips that you might be able to offer someone who's going to find themselves answering hypotheticals or questions about their experience? Maybe what to highlight or what to make sure they get out? I think Dean Dickerson's point about explaining any sort of past experiences that may have reflected poorly upon someone, it's a good opportunity to do do that. 
but anything else you might want to add? I have a few things that I would emphasize. One has already been mentioned by Professor Bowman. If you're interested in a particular position, make that known. Now, do it humbly. Um, Don't do it like, oh, I'm going to be the next editor-in-chief. But if you're interested in that, approach the editor-in-chief and say, I think that what you do is really interesting. And I'd love to know more about the position, know your opinion about whether I might be the type of person who could do this position. And if so, can I shadow you? Um, learning through shadowing, because that's going to show a lot of those things they're looking for, dedication, willingness to learn. Think about the issues that you've seen on the law review that might have been difficult, that maybe you you saw some things that you didn't think were handled the way you should. And think about how you might address those situations, because you're probably going to be asked a question like, if you could change one thing on law review, or improve one thing. So think about those examples and, and you know come up with a little outline of an answer. And I think, again, talk to some past editors. There's something in the front of each journal or the first page, if it's electronic, that's called a masthead. And that masthead lists everyone on the law review and what their positions were. So if you're interested in being an articles editor, Take a look at the last two, three, four years, and then look those people up on LinkedIn. Talk to a couple of people who have a couple of years of perspective on the position and get their ideas a couple of years out of law school about what did they learn in the position? How has the position benefited them in their careers? What might they have done differently? And go in with that perspective as well. And if I can build upon and add just two tips to that, I I agree with you. I was an accounting major with a math minor who went to law school after a 10-year career. Um, (laughs) What can I give? And so it's, it's, it was spend some time thinking about what your strengths and what your areas, what like, like I refer to your areas of opportunity. So what am I good at? Well, I'm detail-orientated. I know how to run a budget, a very large budget. Um, I've hired, I've done interviews, I've, I've terminated. You know, so get to know yourself, do some self-reflection. And I, I agree with Dean Dickerson's um, suggestion about if you've seen something that, I don't like where that's going or this, but also think about, I remember being asked questions of, where would you like this to go in the future? So they were looking for creative ideas. So not only am I looking at here's where the law reviews now, but what could it be in the future? Because things have changed immensely since I served as an editor. But the biggest piece of advice is I would spend some time thinking about your individual. And I'm not just talking your grades. I'm not talking research and writing. But what skills do you bring and what skills could they possibly say, do you have X skill? I mean, no, I don't. And here's why I've struggled with whatever skill it was. Know thyself. That's just great life advice, if I if I do say so myself. This is helpful for your interviews, but also just great life advice. <laughs> now, you know, I mentioned that we can switch gears a little bit here and talk about 
uh, selection of articles, right? So we've talked a lot about how law review, at the heart of it, it's about scholarship and these pieces that get put into this publication. What exactly goes into selecting articles? How are they chosen? But there are many, many factors that go into it. <laughs> Sorry, I know that's kind of a big question. So, as I mentioned in response to another answer, Scribes does a survey of law reviews. And one question we ask of the law reviews in the last survey were what are the factors that are most important in determining whether to accept an article? And in rank order, here were the answers. First and foremost, how well written is that article? Number two, how interesting is the topic, at least to the editors who are reading the piece? But hopefully they're thinking about their broader readership. Is the topic timely? Number four, it's the author's credentials. Where did they go to law school? Did they, did they clerk somewhere? Next is the scholarly approach. Is it an empirical article, for example? Is it a critical race theory article? Is it a law and economics article? That was very important in the selection process to many editors. Next was, what is the author's current position? Are they a professor at Yale Law School? Are they a federal judge? Are they a big law partner? That was important. Whether you agree with that or not, it was number six. Number seven was the quantity and quality of citation to the author's past works. So if this author has written 10 articles, has it been cited by others and how frequently? Next was how well known is the author? Is this a name that if you say it to your classmates, they're going to know it? Or is it someone less known? Next was how many times the author has published in the past. Number 11 was the article title. I thought that one might test yeah. for a little bit higher. Um, given some articles editors I've known. Um, the last three factors were the political philosophy, whether actual or perceived. The author's cover letter that they submit with the article. And if there's a table of contents, does that table of contents make a difference in the selection? That was dead last on the factors. Huh. Very interesting. Some of those are things that I hadn't, I guess I didn't think about, right? Or or things that I thought, like the table of contents, that seems really important. Like I, I'd be surprised if that's not ranked up a little bit higher. Um, and some of the other things you mentioned, Dean Dickerson, kind of make me think, man, is it really hard to be a young law professor? <laughs> because like a lot of those factors work against you, right? Like if it's your very first article, you got to start somewhere. But if people are looking for articles, and I mean, that's not uh, unique to the situation. But those are just some thoughts that I had when you were, were reading out that list. Professor Bowman, did you have anything that you wanted to add real quick? Oh no, our the results from the survey. Yeah. And, the... and Crystal, I will say that newer scholars or scholars from less well-known law schools do have it tough. That's why some journals have implemented a system called double-blind review, 
So the name of the author and their school is actually stripped out during the selection process. So that's not part of the bias. But there are other biases too. If you have an unusual sounding name, maybe you have a female sounding name in some circumstances, that's going to play against you. And so I would encourage all the law students out there who are going to end up being law review editors to remember that point if they get in a position to pick the articles. You know, it's we'd love to see you picking them based on the quality of the article in front of you, not all of these other factors. But we also know that the inclination is if you as a law student are trying to make a good decision, if you've got a name like Richard Delgado or Erwin Chimerensky in front of you, those are known names who are known to produce quality research. That's a good bet for your journal to be able to get Erwin or Richard or someone like Martha Minow at Harvard to publish. So we get it, but it is a dilemma in legal scholarship and legal education. And that wraps up another great episode of the Law School Lounge. Thank you for joining us. I hope that you feel that you're walking away more informed and with some great information about law review and journal editorial boards. Thank you so much to both of my guests for their invaluable insights on these topics. Please, if you're interested in the editorial board or you're fortunate enough to find yourself as a member of the editorial board, be sure to check out the Scribes Manual for Law Review Editors. You can find it on the Carolina Academic Press website and Amazon or through other retailers. If you have a moment, please take the time to leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening on. This really just helps us get recognized and helps us get the word out. Also, please give us a follow on social media. You can find us on Instagram at Law School Lounge. You can also find us on X, same handle. And if you have any requests, you can reach me directly at lawschoolloungepod at caplaw.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll catch you next week.